continue our series, Foundations of the Faith, specifically on Israel. And we began to address the question last week, which has been asked throughout the centuries and is asked even today, and it's this, has God rejected and replaced Israel? So this will be part two. We began to address the question last week by seeing Paul's response to the question. And it was crystal clear, wasn't it? Do you remember what he said? May it never be. Has God rejected his people? He poses the question and answers his own question. May it never be. And then as evidence, he offers himself. He said, for I too am an Israelite. How do you explain me if God's finished with the Jews? How do you explain my life? I'm not only a descendant, says he, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'm also a redeemed one serving the Messiah. Then he pointed us, do you remember, to Elijah's Eliyahu, we call him. Elijah's conversation with God is over against Israel. Remember, he said, they're all rotten eggs except me. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He didn't actually say rotten eggs, but that was the sense of it. You know, they have all gone to worship other gods, but not me. And do you remember God's response? Oh, no. 7,000 have not bowed to the Canaanite false gods. In other words, Paul says, don't you see? God has kept a remnant of Jewish believers through whom he works out his redemptive plan in every generation, as it was in Elijah's day, so too in Paul's day, so too in this day, so too in every day. And then Paul says, but what about the rest of the Jews? If there is this believing remnant. What do we say about the rest? And do you remember when Paul said, well, they have been hardened? And he attributes the hardening to none other than God himself. And we address the question, why would God do such a thing? And the answer was to allow Gentile people uh, to be privy to the good news of redemption through the Jewish Messiah. And so God set aside, if you will, hardened temporarily his own chosen people in order to propagate and proclaim the good news message amongst Gentiles. And Paul says, uh, though this isn't the primary purpose of your salvation, one of the purposes is that you might arouse Jewish people to jealousy, that they might see in you this living proof of a God who is there and who loves them enough to have sacrificed himself for their transgressions, they might want to know him just as you do. So that's what he kind of said over there in Romans. Folks, um, in terms of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, we are kind of in a parenthesis, in the, in the midst of a parenthesis. Here's what I mean. God started things, you recall, way back in Genesis with Abraham. Remember whom he called from Ur of the Chaldees, and he made promises with him, a covenant. He was called Abram. Remember he said, I'm going to give you land and blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you, and a lot of peoples will come from you, and so on and so forth. Remember I told you, check it out in Genesis 12, find me what Abram had to do in order to qualify for this, and there was nothing. 
because it's an unconditional covenant. And so what did Abram's descendants do? Well, they disobeyed God. They turned from him. And so some say, well, now all of these covenant promises which God made to Israel have been forfeited, but I want to show you a little more tonight. That can't be true. So in in the beginning, the first parenthesis is the Abrahamic covenant, and then I want to show you in the end, and we won't get there tonight, uh, but I'll show you eventually that God is going to fulfill literally every one of his promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not symbolically, but literally. Now, that'll come in a period of time we call the millennium, which we'll get to, uh, Lord willing, in weeks to come. So in the middle of the Abrahamic covenant and uh, the fulfillment of God's promises literally to Israel, we have what some call the church age. It's a time when God is bringing in, through the propagation of the gospel, Gentile peoples. Now there's an exception to the rule now and then. Uh, A Jewish person kind of creeps in every once in a while, finds their own Messiah, and becomes part of the church, the called out ones. And this is a wonderful thing. I know this from personal experience, but generally, most who are members of the church today, I'm sure you agree, are not Jews, they are Gentiles, because God has temporarily kind of set aside the Jews and allowed them to experience a kind of a temporary hardening until the time when he again focuses attention on Israel. So that being the case, let's pick up the action where we left off. Romans 11, 13 and 14. Uh, Paul says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. So, so you need to know this right at the outset. Get the context. Uh, Paul is speaking to Gentile uh, believers. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, rather ironic, uh, that this Hebrew of Hebrews, a Rabbi Shaul, would come to be God's representative to Gentile people. But he said, I magnify my ministry if somehow I move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. You know what he was saying? Even though my primary God-given responsibility and calling is to Gentile people, even when I do that, I have in mind my own people, according to the flesh, Jewish people. And I magnify my ministry as I minister the gospel to Gentile people because the more of them who are converted and find the Jewish Messiah, the more possibility there will be that they will be living proof in front of their Jewish friends that they will arouse them to jealousy. So you must see, even in his calling to Gentiles, he didn't forget uh, Jewish people. And so... He says to them, the salvation of Jews, even though he's ministering to Gentiles, is very much on his mind. Now he goes on to verse 15. For if their uh, rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Common sense. Paul says, if Jewish people, in their rejection of the Jewish Messiah... If in doing that, God used it as a benefit to Gentiles, because Gentiles hear the gospel, how much more will Gentiles, will the world be blessed through the acceptance of the Messiah by Jewish people? 
If Almighty God can use Jewish people's rejection of Jesus for blessing, how much more can he use their acceptance of Jesus for blessing? Now, last week we spoke about uh, replacement theology, you recall, and we're doing so uh, again this evening. Uh, the perspective that says, since most Jewish people have rejected Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah has rejected and replaced them. In essence, that's what replacement theology says. I tried to make the case last week that it's not biblical at all. And here again, I want to point that out. How in the world, if replacement theology is true, if God's replaced the Jews, how in the world could God have his apostle here, his Jewish apostle, say what he does here? What will their, the Jewish people, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If God has replaced the Jewish people, how could there be this future hope for Jewish people? If their rejection has been a blessing for Gentile people, he says, what then will be, how much will their acceptance be a blessing in the future? How could God have Paul stand up and even make this statement if, in fact, God has moved past the Jews and replaced them uh, with the church and no longer has a plan to fulfill his covenant to the Jews, you see? But here, the implication is, oh, no, God's not finished with Jewish people yet, and therefore neither should we be. Now, Romans eleven sixteen, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Metaphorical language. Uh, Paul is a good teacher, and he's teaching using illustrations people could relate. To. And so, for instance, take this one about the root. It's an agricultural kind of a metaphor. If the root of a tree has a certain character and nature, so too will all of its branches. But the root can't have one character, and the branch is an entirely different one. So the root supports the branches. As the root is, so too are the branches. In this case, the question is uh, mentioned, if the root is holy, won't the branches be also? So what, are the, what is the root a reference to? Folks, I think you'll see in the context, the root is a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God's covenant inaugurated with them first, established first in Genesis 12 with Abraham, and reconfirmed through Isaac and then Jacob. Remember, we spoke about how it's passed on uh, through their line of descendancy. So the root are the Jewish patriarchs with whom God sought to establish a people, a chosen people, through whom the world would be blessed. So the root is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the root is holy... Set apart, that's what holy means, sanctified for a special purpose. So too will the branches that come from the root. 
If the root, the Jewish patriarchs, have been set apart from God to glorify him, so too will all of their descendants, the branches, the Jewish people, also be set apart for God's special purposes. So how can you sustain replacement theology if God's continuation with the Jews has nothing to do with them and their obedience or disobedience? It all has to do with his involvement with the root. He, on his own initiative, established an unconditional covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If that root has the character of holiness, so too will all the branches. So can you see how replacement theology is logical but not biblical? It's logical because you would expect since the Jewish people have hardened themselves to their own Messiah, it would be understandable for him to reject them. But his continuance with the Jewish people is not a function of what they do or don't do. It's a function of his covenant involvement with the root, the Jewish root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you see that? Okay, I hope so. <laughs> All righty. Now it goes on to say this in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, if some of the Jewish branches were temporarily set aside. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentile believers, being a wild olive, have you ever thought of yourself that way? <laughs> if you, being a wild olive, were grafted in, so you were grafted in, you're graphites, every, all, of, all Gentile believers, it's a new tribe, the graphites, if you were grafted in among them, the them are the Jews. If you, the wild olives, Gentile believers, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Look what's going on. God is speaking of natural branches, some of whom have been set apart. Wild olive branches who've been grafted in. Those are Gentile believers who, by God's grace, have been brought to the place of blessing. What is the place of blessing? It's the root of the olive tree. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The root is very Jewish. Folks, I don't want to offend you, but it is not Baptist. <laughs> the place of blessing, the root of the olive tree is not Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian or any of that. It's not Protestant. It's not Catholic. It's Jewish. This is not my opinion. Look, the root of the olive tree are the patriarchs who are Jewish, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If some of the branches of that Jewish tree were broken off, and you, notice I'm taking pains with this because I want you to get this, being a wild olive, that's not uh, um, uh, to degrade you in any way, it's just to say you are not a branch natural to the root of the tree. You're not. In fact, this horticultural metaphor is kind of weird because no horticulturist would do this. You don't take a perfectly good olive tree and graft into it wild branches. That's the point of the illustration. God, in saving you guys, has done a very unnatural thing. He did a supernatural thing. Why? 
Because you were never part of the olive tree. The roots are Jewish. Now, why am I taking pains to say that? Well, because now the tables have been reversed, and guys like me have to try to fit into a primarily Gentile church until the day when locks and bagels come again. And I'm telling you, get used to I'm telling you, they're down the road. Uh, so, 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 so that's the point of this, uh, this unusual horticultural analogy. No, you don't do this in a natural sense, but that's the point. God did it. And, and so he took Gentile peoples who weren't part of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he grafted them in, though they be wild olive branches. And so, so uh, I want you to see something. In one word in verse 17, uh, you should, you should uh, destroy replacement theology forever. One word, and it's the word among uh, you guys, you being a wild, wild olive, notice, were grafted in among them. It doesn't say instead of them. If it said instead of them, you got replacement theology. If it says among them, you don't have replacement theology. You still have a very Jewish root, a very Jewish olive tree, and a very Jewish Messiah, and a God who's still very much concerned about his, fulfilling his promises to Jewish people. Now, you're not a second-class citizen at all. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you in the order of things, God started his plan of redemption with a Jewish root from whom came Jewish branches, many of whom have hardened themselves to God, some of whom have not, all of whom are still loved by him. And if you have been grafted in, notice it's among them, but not to replace them. So when people say the church has replaced Israel... I want to know how you reconcile that to Romans chapter 11, verse 17. One word among, it seems to me, repudiates replacement theology. Okay, so now it says this. If all this is true, if, if Gentile believers, wild olive branches, have been grafted in among the natural branches into the root of the olive tree, which is God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If all this is true, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do you think it's necessary for Paul to say that? Oh, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I used to be with Jews for Jesus, and I, had a, uh, I was in Chicago, and, and we used to, on the streets of Chicago, we used to hand out uh, tracts. And we wore a shirt that said, Jews for Jesus. Big old shirt. And I remember one time, and so some Jewish people did like us, but then so-called church people were the worst. Uh, I remember one man of a different denomination, I don't have to mention the denomination, looked at me with disdain, and he said, uh, we knew him first. That's what he says. I'm thinking, what the heck are you talking so there is this arrogance towards the branches. A historical arrogance, and Paul notices it. And so he so this is a kind of a rebuke. You guys wouldn't have had a prayer but for the grace of God who had to do a very unnatural thing to get you to be among Jewish believers and find your place of blessing in the root of the olive tree, which is God's covenant, 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you have the audacity to sort of point the finger. Those Jews. You see, it's a kind of an attitude of arrogance. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. See, that's just the Bible. That's not Stuart, right? So this is like the cure for arrogance. You know what it's saying? Uh, Gentile believers, wild olive branches, can't sustain themselves. You're only sustained by the root. The root supports you. You don't support the root. And what's the root? The Abrahamic covenant, which was reaffirmed through Yitzchak and Yaakov. Look, I used the Hebrew just to show you. Those are Jew boys. So can you see how the arrogance could, 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 could wrongly set in there? You don't support the root. The root supports you. So Paul gives Gentile believers and other Gentiles a bit of a warning against boasting and bragging and being arrogant and being even anti-Semitic here because you're, you're sustained by a very Jewish root. And it's necessary for Paul to say what he did because sadly throughout history, the history of the church broadly defined, many of its representatives have responded to Jewish people much differently than God has. Many church leaders have responded to Jewish people in a very hateful way. Uh, they have observed perhaps Israel's rejection of their own Messiah therefore have concluded they're on God's side to persecute the Jewish people who have rejected their Messiah. And so uh, this is one of the reasons why a lot of my people couldn't see themselves believing in Jesus or being part of the church because you see, a lot of things about my people, we're, we're short, we're kind of obnoxious, we talk a lot. You say whatever you want. But you can't say this, that we have memory problems. See, we remember. I'll tell you some of the things we remember. I want to give you a sampling of what's happened in church history. Just some things that some well-known church leaders have done and said. So we'll start with Justin Martyr. Uh, lived around A.D. 160. He said, the scriptures are not yours, he said to the Jewish people. The scriptures are not yours, but ours. See, that's kind of a goofy statement to say when every one of the writers of Old and New Testament, except perhaps with the possible exception of Luke, the physician, uh, are all Jews. So that's kind of a goofball statement for Justin to make here. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, around A.D. 177. Jews are disinherited from the grace of God. So you can say what you want to about us, but we remember this stuff. Tertullian, remember Tertullian, A.D. 160 to 230. In his treatise, here's what the treatise was called, Against the Jews. So this is one of the early church fathers. He's got nothing to do but to write a, a little pamphlet against the Jews. He announced in it that God had rejected the Jews in favor of Christians. Eusebius, 4th century. 
wrote that the promises of the Hebrew Scriptures were for Christians and no longer for the Jews, but the curses were for the Jews. You get the good stuff, we get the bad stuff. That's kind of interesting theology. He said it's essential to discredit the Jews uh, in order to prove that God had indeed cast away his people and transferred his love to the Christians. You know, just kind of thinking that got us to be blamed for stuff like the Black Plague. We don't have to do any, with anything to do with that. We're clean. We wash your hands. They blame the Black Plague on us because of statements like this guy. Hillary of Poitiers, I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. A.D. 291-371. These are all church leaders. Jews are a perverse people accursed by God forever. So when you invite your friend to go to church and they ain't too thrilled, maybe you now know why. Gregory of Nyssa, A.D. 394, Bishop of Cappadocia. The Jews are a brood of vipers, haters of goodness. Well, that makes me feel good. St. Jerome, A.D. 347 to 407. The Jews are serpents wearing the image of Judas. John Chrysostom, 4th century. Chrysostom was the prince of preachers, golden-tongued orator, bishop of Antioch. And he wrote a series of sermons against the Jews. In one of them, he said, here's a direct quote, the synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it is also a den of robbers and a lodging for wild beasts, no Jew adores God. Jews are inveterate murderers possessed by the devil. Their debauchery and drunkenness gives them the manners of the pig. Of all animals to use. <laughs> we don't do the pig thing. <laughs> of all things to use. Chrysostom argued that the Jews will be crucified throughout history because they crucified Christ. He said, direct quote, it is because you, the Jews, shed the precious blood that there is now no restoration, no mercy anymore, and no defense. Can you see the roots of replacement theology? You see it? It goes way, way back. St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, 340 to 397 A.D. He instigated the burning of a synagogue by an anti-Semitic mob. Godfroy Bouillon, the leader of the First Crusade, there was like a lot of them. Here's the first, A.D. 1096. He swore to avenge the blood of Christ in Israel and to leave no single member of the Jewish race alive. When the Crusaders arrived in Israel, they rounded up the Jews in Jerusalem, all of them, herded them into a synagogue, and they burned it to the ground, and then they marched triumphantly around the burning synagogue, singing all along, Christ, we adore thee. Can you see why some Jewish people don't want to be a Christian? Now this does not reflect the attitude of Christ. He gets a bum rap. Guilt by association with church people, which is why, don't be so quick to win someone to church. Lift up Jesus. Many more people reject church than they do the head of the church. 
To be honest with you, I'm not so anxious to get people to come here. I'm more anxious to get them to come to the Messiah. And if that means meeting with them outside of here, until here has meaning to them, why are you bringing them here? This is for insiders. This is for Christians. Church is for Christians. Christians are supposed to do the representational work of the Christ out there. So, so can you see why Jewish people are ain't too thrilled about like being Baptists and stuff like that? Pope Innocent III in 1205, Pope, wrote this, direct quote, The Jews, by their own guilt, are consigned to perpetual servitude because they crucified the Lord. Gee, I thought the Romans had something to do with it. Also, as slaves rejected by God in whose death they wickedly conspire, they shall by uh, the effect of this very action recognize themselves as the slaves of those whom Christ's death set free. Pope Gregory in 1236, he ordered church leaders to confiscate Jewish books on the first Saturday of Lent. So that's how he thought we'll celebrate Lent. Let's, let's burn Jewish books. Uh, Pope Innocent, and boy, is that a misnomer. Pope Innocent IV in 1252 authorized the use of torture in motivating Jews to convert. The Synod of Vienna in 1267 ordered Jews to wear horned hats. In every generation, the church ordered Jews to distinguish themselves by wearing funny stuff. What do you think, that was a new thing for Hitler? Uh, for, for, for Jews to have to wear the, the yellow star of David? To dist- I mean, it goes way back here to the Middle Ages. There was something called the Shepherd Crusade, 1320. Uh, it consisted of 40,000 French Catholic shepherds who uh, went on a crusade to the Holy Land. On the way, they decided to please their Lord by destroying 140 Jewish communities. By the way, if you go to Israel, the word crusade, maybe you should leave it behind. Crusade isn't such a good idea. You know, it's really interesting. There's quite a crusader presence even in Israel today. If you go to visit Israel, you'll see crusader architecture, crusader fortresses, and all this kind of stuff. My people don't like it. They remember stuff like forced baptisms and burnt down synagogues in Christ's name and all the, uh, and all the rest. The Council of Basel, 1431, uh, forbade Jews to go to universities, uh, uh, prohibited Jews from acting as agents in the conclusion of contracts uh, between Christians, and required that Jews attend church services and listen to all the sermons made Jews go to church. That's terrible. Capistrano. What a good name. Place in California. You know, San Juan Capistrano. Nice little birds. This guy was not a nice little bird. He was a Franciscan monk. And in 1453, he persuaded the king of Poland to terminate all Jewish civil rights. We had no rights. Thank you, Capistrano. Have you heard of Martin Luther? So let me qualify what I'm about to read to you about what he said by telling you I admire him as a man. 
Just don't get too stuck on any man. The best of men is but a man at best. Worship the God-man. Jesus lets nobody down. But even Martin Luther can and did. I respect him. What a great hymn writer. Translated the Bible, made it available in the vernacular of the people, German. Um, was a catalyst, uh, obviously, for the Reformation uh, against the Catholic Church. Remember the 95 Theses? He nailed it to the door of the church. I mean, this is, this is quite a guy. And I, I can't explain. I don't know him. I haven't had a conversation. I, I can't explain how he went so crazy. Uh, in 1543, this is what he wrote with regard to the Jews. Eject them forever from this country. For as we have heard, God's anger with them is so intense that gentle mercy will only tend to make them worse and worse, while sharp mercy will reform them but little. Therefore, in any case, away with them. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of the Jews? Martin Luther the great reformer. He goes on to say, he answers his own question, what are you going to do with the Jews here? First, their synagogues or churches, we don't call them churches. Martin didn't even know what he was talking about. Their synagogues should be set on fire. Can you see why my people ain't too thrilled about converting to Christianity? Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury. All their cash and valuables of silver and gold ought to be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, the distaff, and spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses, as is enjoined upon Adam's children. To sum up, says Martin Luther, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one, so that you and we may be all free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Did you know about this stuff? Yeah, it's true. So do you know why we take pains around here to study the Bible, handle it as carefully as we could? Can you see how distorted theology can lead to horrible things persecutions, not just against the Jews, all kinds of distorted things. You see, these are all theologians. Everyone I mentioned was a leader in the church, not Tom, Dick, and Harry. Good night, Martin Luther. Chrysostom, St. Jerome, Ambrose. These are big machers, big shots in the church. It doesn't matter. If you are not conducting yourself through the grid of Scripture accurately handled, it could lead to all kinds of crazy stuff. That's why when we started this series a million years ago, we started with the Bible. If it goes as our primary authority, anything, even replacement theology, it's evil. Even replacement theology can find its place in the church, and it does today.
over 2,000 years of distortion of God's holy word has led to all this persecution and anti-Semitism, which is why you and I have got to center on the word of God. You have to call me to task if I wander from it, and I have to lovingly call you. We have to help each other. We're prone to it prone to wander. We must not, we dare not wander from the Word of God. This kind of thinking in theology, even though it starts in theological ivory towers, finds its way down to the masses until you have something like the Holocaust. Am I making a blind leap? Uh, no. The two events are not disconnected. Folks, I have to tell you, Hitler himself had his theologians, and they were some of the guys I just mentioned. Don't you think Martin Luther, the German theologian, was read by Adolf Hitler to justify exterminating the Jews? I'm telling you, this theology, which you think is just the reserve of seminaries, oh no, it's our business. Theology means the study of God. You can't know him. You can only speculate about him unless he reveals himself. And this he did in 66 books of Scripture. If it goes, watch out for the next Holocaust. I'm telling you, so Hitler acted in accordance with the very non-biblical teaching of his own German theologians with reference to the Jewish people. In fact, he saw the genocide of the Jews as a sacred mission. He wrote in Mein Kampf, you know that's his book he wrote, Mein Kampf, My Battle. Hitler said this, Today I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the almighty creator by defending myself against the Jew. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Read it in Mein Kampf. When you drift away from Bible, which is why if I say something and step on toes, please, I don't rejoice in that. On the other hand, if you can't prove me wrong from the scriptures, leave me alone. If I challenge a certain church tradition that I think has no biblical basis and which is obligating us blindly to be enslaved to it, if it doesn't work anymore, still we do it. And, you, and because some have confused this particular tradition with a biblical standard, and if I challenge it, you must call me to task if I'm off base. But if I can show you from the scriptures, it's just a man-made thing. You could take it or leave it. Then leave me alone. Don't drift from the scriptures. Sola scriptura. That's a reformation principle. The scriptures alone are the basis of our authority. We don't follow creeds. We don't have ecclesiastical bodies. And we don't let church tradition rule. We surely don't let the opinions of men. It's the word of God. Hitler, based on his uh, distorted theologians and their mishandling of the word thought he was actually working in harmony with God in his attempts to exterminate God's people. But I want to tell you something. <laughs> he wasn't working in harmony with God at all. Neither are replacement theologians. Neither are two covenant theologians. And neither are full preterists. <laughs> Every one of them 
Every one of them thinks God has moved past the Jews. There is no future for them. But I want to read to you God's attitude about the Jews. Why? If yours is not like his, then you are at odds with God. That's why. And we don't want to be at odds with God over anything, the Jews or anybody. I'd like to share with you, I shared with you Hitler's approach to the Jews. Let me share with you God's through his own prophet Isaiah, chapter 41, 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Get it right, Church of Jesus Christ. Get it right when it comes to the Jews. Or you have to deal with the Jewish Messiah. Me too. I could get it wrong too. <laughs> we need the mind of Christ, and we can't get the mind of Christ except through the words of Christ, and that's the Bible. Folks, has God rejected the Jews? I just want to share with you once again Paul's words. May it never be. Oh, he is surely reproving my people down to this very day. But that he is reproving them in no wise means he is rejecting or replacing them. In fact, the Bible specifically says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And that's the call the church of Jesus Christ ought to issue to unsaved Jewish people. Be zealous, repent, turn from your own attempt to be right in God's eyes. Turn to the righteous one, the only tzaddik, the only one who fulfilled perfectly the law of Moses. Turn to your own Messiah. Be grafted back in. If I, a wild olive, you tell them, a wild olive branch could find my place in the rich Jewish root of the olive tree, how much easier it would be for you, tell your Jewish friend, to find your place once again in the root of the olive tree, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's covenant with them. Can you see what's at stake here? It's the very character of God. Can you take him at his word? Or can you out-sin his grace? <laughs> can your sin extinguish God's grace? That's not what the Bible says. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. If it isn't true with the Jews, why should it be true with the church? <laughs> and if it isn't true with the church, you don't have any right to be hopeful. If God has rejected the Jews, folks, we can't sing the song I want us to sing. Let's sing Blessed Assurance. Just kind of popped into my mind. Hey, Daniel, you could cut it here because the singing won't be good because if I lead it. But 